Good morning. Thank you all for coming together to practice uh, either here at Great Vow or online. Uh, my name is Bancho, and I'm normally at Heart of Wisdom Zen Temple, our city temple in Portland. So if you ever find yourself in Northeast Portland, please come and practice with us there. Today, I'd like to uh, give a talk on one of the Buddha's foundational teachings, and that is the Buddha's teaching of non-self. Yesterday, during our foundations class, a, an eight-month class that we do online, uh, Enryu Fernando gave a lecture on the Buddha's teaching of non-self, so I thought I would share it with you as well and also um, share the practices that we did. So there are three teachings or characteristics that mark a teaching as being genuine Buddha Dharma. These are dukkha, impermanence, and non-self or not-self. And uh, these are sometimes called the three marks of phenomenon or existence or seals but it's not like a barking seal at the, at the zoo. This is the kind of seal that you can imagine in ancient times with like wax and you put, the Buddha would put his mark on it. Not literally, but that's what it evokes. Um, so these aspects of the Buddha's teaching, dukkha, which is sometimes translated as suffering, impermanence, and not self. So dukkha, dukkha is the, uh, the observation that human beings, that being a human being is tough. Human beings have stress and sometimes it's acute, sometimes it's traumatic, and sometimes it's just things feel off or unsatisfactory. And this was often translated early on in the early 20th century as suffering, but it really doesn't capture the, uh, it really doesn't capture the sort of all-pervading dissatisfaction that we, that we, can, that we experience. Um, the, the original word, dukkha, has uh, the connotation of uh, that axle being off on a cart, right? Well, we don't have carts, but we can, we can think about the, gro the grocery cart and you pull off the grocery cart and you get the one with the wheel that like bangs, bangs, bangs down all the rows. Um, so that just that, that grinding against, against experience. So the other aspect is impermanence, which we, things change, are constantly flowing. And all compounded things, all things made of things, are impermanent and they change. And then no self, which is all phenomenon, are without uh, inherent self, and that includes us. So I want to talk a little bit about each of these. So dukkha, that was the 
the Shakyamuni Buddha, that was uh, his main focus is on why is being a human being so unsatisfying. And uh, he was on the path uh, of study for a long time with many different teachers and learned a lot from many different teaching, teachers. And um, eventually he uncovered for himself what's called the Four Noble Truths, or as our teacher Hogan likes to call them, the Four Observations, the Four Normal Observations. So the first one is there's dukkha, friction, stress, unsatisfactoriness. And we can take a look for ourselves and see if that's true. The second is that there is a cause for our distress. It has a source. And that cause is clinging. Clinging to um, experience, clinging to, uh, <laughs> clinging to what's impermanent. <laughs> um, that are... Um, Either wanting, grasping, or pushing things away causes us um, distress. The third noble truth is that there is a way out of the hamster wheel of liking and disliking our life and our experience. And the fourth is a path of practice. And that's what we do here at the monastery, um, is practice this path. It's available to everyone. And it's sometimes called the Eightfold Path, but it really, there's three aspects, wisdom, ethics, and mental discipline. I like how Sylvia Borstein is an insight meditation teacher, and she phrases the four um, noble truths this way. Life is challenging because everything is always changing, and we continually need to adjust to new circumstances. Life is challenging because everything is always changing and we need to continually adjust, need to adjust to new circumstances. And we don't like that. <laughs> That's the clinging part. Adding struggle to challenge creates suffering. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. If you have a human body, you'll suffer discomfort, pain. Um, but the suffering is extra. The suffering is the, I don't, this, this, is, this is wrong, I don't like this, um, pushing it away. Peace is possible. In the middle of a complicated life, the mind can remain at ease. That's the nirvana. Peace is possible. In the middle of a complicated life, the mind can be, remain at ease. And the path for developing this kind of mind involves attention to ethical behavior, disciplining habits of mind through meditation and to ardent intention. The path to developing this kind of mind involves attention to ethics, disciplining the mind, and ardent intention. So we can observe this seal, this mark on phenomenon, this mark on our own life. Being a human is hard sometimes. Sometimes it's a lot of the time it's difficult. Uh, and we cling to things, we cling to experience, this shouldn't change, this person shouldn't die, this person shouldn't be sick. Um, we cling to things or we push them away. So the second mark is impermanence, which is 
I think we can all observe that everything changes. Um, winter is um, changing to spring. The, there's beginning to be some buds on trees. Um, but things, that's, <laughs> that's a change that I agree with. I like spring coming. <laughs> um, the, there's the change that I don't agree with. I don't like the uh, change of growing older and having my body change in ways that, that I don't agree with. I'm not ready for that. Or I'm not ready for people who I care about to die. Um, I don't like that. I resist that. Shouldn't happen. Um, that's where the suffering comes in. It's not the actual passing of those that we care about. It's the struggle. So that's one of the things that um, we practice here is um, brutal honesty about impermanence, brutal honesty about the way things are. Um, there's one piece of Dharma that I have in my bathroom. I'd like to read it to you. Um, this is the five remembrances that we practice. And in February, we mark the passing of the Buddha, which is why on the altar right now, we have a picture of the Buddha reclining on his side, and that is uh, the Buddha dying. And um, during this time, we investigate uh, what is life and what is death. And one of the thing, one of the teachings that we uh, have is the five remembrances, and sometimes we recite this. It's a remembrance of impermanence. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way, no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. There is no way to be, to escape being separated from them. My deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. Old age, ill health, death, being separated from those that we care about. They change, we change. There's no way to escape this. And so, what is our relationship to these truths? That is what our practice is about, is how do we relate to what is reality? And noticing the places where we resist it, where we resist the way things are, where we struggle, where we struggle with the way things are. Because that's where the suffering comes in. 
it is painful to be separated from those that we care about. But do we add, what do we add to that that's unnecessary? The grief of being separated from those that we care about and those we love is already hard enough as it is. Um, so we practice with the five remembrances as a way to kind of cut through the philosophizing that can happen about impermanence or like, oh yeah, yeah, I got that. Yeah, things change. Do we really, really, really take that in? And if we notice the places of resistance, that's great. That's practice. The practice isn't, I got it. The practice is noticing the places that we get caught and then exploring them. So we've talked about dukkha, which has a, uh, which is our experience. And there's also a way to step out of that. That's the important thing to remember. <laughs> there is a path and impermanence, the really grappling with um, our resistance, coming to terms with our resistance to the way things are. One more thing about impermanence, too, is this. Um, when we find ourselves in resistance about things changing, those that we care about getting old or dying, leaving us, we can spend so much time in the mental activity of resisting this fact that we're actually not in the moment for their presence here with us. I remember when um, we had a retreat here and one of, uh, there was a Zen teacher that our community is really close to and he died during, he wasn't at the retreat. He was in Portland and he was very close to our teachers Chosen in Hogan, his name is Kyogen Carlson. And uh, uh, he all of a sudden had a heart attack and died like on a sidewalk. And it hit me at that moment that my teachers were gonna die, which of course I knew that. Um, but it really, it really just permeated everything. And as a result of that, one of the things, the, the activity was, what I noticed was the resi my resistance to that. Um, and I, was, I would be caught up in that mental activity of resistance to that, sort of grieving the loss of my teachers and they're still here. So, um, my mother, my mother was sick recently and she died. And um, I could either be dwelling in the resistance of the fact that she was ill or just be present with her. And that's the gift that practice brings us is to really notice how we're caught and so we can let that go. We can just drop it. 
So the third teaching is non-self. Or it's often said there's no self. And that, that creates confusion. Um, and there's actually a great debate. <laughs> if you really want to <laughs> debate between translators about how to do this. So these great translators, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Thanissaro Bhikkhu, which if you read Pali texts, you've heard their names before. And they actually disagree about, is it no self or non-self? Um, so, um, so I'll use non-self. Um, so a word of caution about this is that I think this is often misunderstood. Um, this non-self teaching is not a philosophical musing. It's not a parlor game. The Buddha is only, only interested in suffering and the release of suffer from suffering. So the Buddha is inviting us to investigate non-self as our experience. So the Buddha is not saying we don't exist or that our bodies don't exist or that our thoughts don't exist. Um, I like how Thanissaro Bhikkhu says that addresses this kind of um, confusion, very, very normal mis misunderstanding. He says, usually when we hear the teaching on not self, we think it's an answer to questions like these. Do I have a self? What am I? Do I exist? Do I not exist? However, the Buddha listed all of these as unskillful questions, which is, that's interesting. Do I exist? Do I not exist? Is unskillful. Once when he was asked point blank, is there a self? Is there no self? He refused to answer. He said that these questions would get in the way of finding true happiness. So obviously the question on not self was not meant to answer these questions. To understand not-self, we have to find out which questions it was meant to answer. So this teaching is really about the dynamic of I-making, me-making, mine-making. How we overly interpret our experience to the point that we create a territory that needs to be defended. And that this territory of me and I um, is not what it seems and it creates great distress. So I'm going to use the term non-self because I'm convinced of Thanissaro Bhikkhu's argument for its use, that non-self is a tool for ending, this is what he says, an end to clinging, even though the Buddha never affirmed or denied the existence, he did talk about the process of I-making and my-making. The question lies at the heart of discernment, what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term happiness and welfare? And we will find that happiness by letting go. So the observation is that in the Buddhist teaching is that we're a compounded thing too. 
that we are made of parts. And those are uh, our, our body. Sometimes that's, when we chanted this morning, they said form. So we have a body and that body perceives things, smells, smells that it likes, tastes, things that it likes to touch. Um, and those, the objects of those concepts and thoughts, which is called formations. For those of you who keep, you know, ticking through the, the, uh, the uh, Heart Sutra and consciousness, which, um, what is consciousness? I like one a Zen teacher who calls consciousness as the story of all of that. So consciousness is the story. So our body, our feelings, our senses, our thoughts, our story about all these things. And that what these are, they're sometimes called the aggregates. All five aggregates are empty, we say in the Heart Sutra. That's what this is. Um, and so these things are in a constant dynamic process. And in that constant dynamic process, we we begin to concretize that into something we identify as our self, as the self, as me. And that by overly interpreting that, we suffer. Because again, that's what the Buddha cares about. So the Buddha teaches about not-self that has three aspects. One is noticing our lack of control over them. Can't control our body, really. Like when I have to pee, I have to pee, right? We can't control, I can't decide, you know what, I'm just not going to be hungry today. Or I'm not going to poop today. Or, you know, I'm not going to get old for this month. So... That stresses us out. We can't control our thoughts. You can't decide, you know what, here's what I'm going to think about at noon. We can't plan it, right? Um, so we really don't have much control. Um, we talked about impermanence, our attempt to control things that are cha constantly changing. Um, these things, these, these aggregates, are constantly changing. And so then when we, when we see these things directly, then we become um, disenchanted is the word that they use. So we don't get worked up so much. So I want to give you just a sense of the, the Buddha's words in this. So this is the, th remember there's three parts of this. One is our lack of control over the aggregates, our, our body, our thoughts, our sensations, our emotions. Um, well, feeling is not so much emotion, it's like whether positive, negative, or neutral about our experience. So the, here's how it, it's a taste of the Pali Canon where this teaching is. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Benares in the deer park at Isipatana. There he addressed the bhikkhus, his followers, monks, 
of the group of five. Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied, and the blessed one began. So two things about this. One is he addressed the group of five. So this was an early teaching of the Buddha. This was his five followers who he came, he, he awakened to, to, to the truth. And he, uh, went, he encountered his old friends from practice. So he gave them this as, I think it's the second uh, sermon that he gave. The other thing that's interesting about this is the deer park at Isipatana. Isipatana is called also the resort of seers. So the Buddha was at a resort. I think it was a different kind of resort. Uh, so here's how he uses, dis, um, kind of takes it apart. He says to his followers, form is not self. Our body is not self. If our body was self, then this body, this form would not lead to affliction. And one could have it of, of our body. Let my body be thus. Let my body not be thus. And since form is not self, so it leads to stress and affliction and none can have it a form. Let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. So because we don't really have control over this body, how could it be ourself? How could it have an essence of me? And then he goes, kind of goes through each of the aspects of our thoughts, our senses, etc saying we, we really can't control those. So then he says our attempt to control and own that which is temporary. We attempt to, to control and own what is uh, only temporary. This is I, me, mine. This is not I, me, mine. So he asked them, bhikkhus, how do you conceive it? Is form permanent or impermanent? And they say impermanent. Now, what is impermanent, painful, or pleasant? And they're like, well, it's painful because we just talked about how we're constantly losing, losing what we love. It's constantly changing. It may change into something that we like, but then it'll change into something that we don't like. Um, he says, now, what is impermanent, what is painful and subject to change, is it fit to be regarded as this is mine, this is I, this is myself? No, venerable sir. And then he goes through all the five aspects. So all these are subject to change. The Buddha is basically saying, does it make sense to identify as me something that's both painful and totally changing all the time? So here's something too. So when we, when we really see that, that we're not in control of these aspects, we're not really in charge, that it's a dynamic, emerging, ever emerging process. Um, our practice is to see that for ourselves, to really investigate this. You don't have to just believe it because the Buddha said it and I'm sharing it with you. We're invited to investigate it. So if we're a constantly changing dynamic process, 
the, the compassion that can come when we recognize that is, so are other people. So are other people. They're in a constantly dynamic, changing process that, and have arrived based on, on the consequences of their deeds and others. How much control are they in? And also, how much sense does it make to, one of the, one of the a painful uh, thought processes having uh, worrying about what other people think about us, trying to control what other people think about us. If we can't even control our own thoughts, if we can't even control what we're going to think about at 12, 17, later today, how do we think we can control what other people think about us? So the Buddha basically says that because of all this, that we should regard this phenomenon when we notice it, our form, our feelings, our thoughts that we attach to as this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. Any kind of feeling, our senses, our thoughts, the story, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. So let's do a little practice. It's helpful to, um, for this particular meditation, perhaps keeping the eyes open if you normally close them when you meditate, maybe just a quarter open or half open. So simply noticing the direct experience of your body sitting right here. Noticing the touch contact where your body meets your seat. The experience of pressure, perhaps under the sit bones, your bottom, knees, feet on the floor, just that sense experience of pressure. So feeling how your body is supported by your seat and sitting upright and feeling the posture of your body. Aware of your body moving as it breathes, in-breath and out-breath.
noticing the flow of breath from warmth to coolness. And feeling the whole body as it sits and breathes. feeling, experiencing the body as it sits, all the touches, itches, twinges, this is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. This breath, this is not mine. This breath, this is not I. This is not myself. Notice what thoughts are there, opinions, judgments, fantasy, daydreaming. This is not mine. Where did it come from? Where did that thought come from? This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. Well, thank you for a brief experiment. And this is something that we can do with these suttas is that it's not just an intellectual exercise is really take it in and investigate and practice. So the final part of this teaching is that when we recognize the truth of the impermanence of and the fact that we are compounded that we become disenchanted with this, um, with the self. Insofar that, again, the Buddha is concerned about suffering and he's not concerned about whether or not the self exists or not. 
It's concerned about the clinging that happens, the misapprehension that happens that creates suffering for ourselves and other people. Doesn't mean that we don't have a personality and our own proclivities. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about creating territory that separates us from other people and makes us feel alone and distressed. So the disenchantment is, um, you know, what's an enchantment? It's basically an illusion. It's magic, right? So it's not as if we don't exist and we don't have a personality. And like in a magic show, the rabbit really does come out of a hat, right? Um, but that's not the whole picture. And so the Buddha is inviting us to look into that whole picture. So we don't get so worked up when we become, when we're able to we become dispassionate. So it's about seeing through what appears solid, what appears unchanging, that appears to be defended, and no longer buying into our thoughts, most of which are negative, right? She doesn't like me. I'm bad at this. I can never do this right. I'm not that kind of person. I could never do that. No longer identifying with these thoughts that arise from where? and identifying them as true, and most importantly, as me. Recognizing that we are this dynamic process. So I invite you to continue to investigate the compounded nature of your experience. We're just kind of borrowing, we're just kind of borrowing everything. It's just passing through. The clothes that we wore it used to be cloth in Asia, and then they were owned by Fred Meyer, and now we're wearing them, and then eventually they'll go to Goodwill. Somebody else will wear them. We're just temporarily having them. This body <laughs> used to be sunshine and raindrops and seeds and the labor of farm workers, and now it's here. It's made up this body, and then it will pass through. So we can not take things so seriously when we really see that dynamic nature of things. So I invite you to continue to, to see for yourself. So thank you all for your attention.